I would be too, to, to be fair. Uh, hey, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. What we're going to do uh, today is wrap up this little mini-series we've been doing on the sign of the covenant. So specifically, we're, we're talking about baptism as uh, one of the two, two signs in the new covenant, uh, the Lord's Supper being the other sacrament. Um, and what we've done so far, we've talked about uh, the God of the covenant. We've talked about the sign of the covenant. This morning, we're going to talk about the children of the covenant. Uh, so we're doing this to try to just encourage us to know what you believe and, and uh, hopefully foster what is a friendly conversation uh, because I know and we are trying to make and keep Tabernacle a safe space uh, for those who come at this from differing perspectives. Uh, we're, we're a big tent and the main thing here is Jesus, uh, not your view on baptism. Nonetheless, uh, this is in Scripture. We want to know what Scripture says and appreciate you know, the different perspectives. Um, I think if you've been around Tabernacle for a while, you've heard bits and pieces of my story. I'm going to share a little bit more of my story uh, with you this morning. But if you're new and just joining us, uh, this is a little bit of an in-house conversation about baptism, so hang in there. But, uh, but I hope if you're new either to Tabernacle or even just new to the Bible, new to Christianity altogether, you're going you're gonna to overhear in this conversation what we think is a beautiful picture of how Jesus saves us. And, and so stay tuned uh, for, for those things. Um, I, I became a Christian right after my freshman year at JMU. I'd grown up in a skeptical family. Um, my, my dad is an art professor uh, at, at Old Dominion University. Um, so just the whole academic environment and, and especially the, the arts, uh, you can imagine, is incredibly liberal and incredibly um, skeptical, really, of a lot of uh, the claims of Christianity. So that was my background growing up. And then um, God worked powerfully in my heart uh, that whole freshman year. I raised the white flag of surrender the first week home that summer. And really what happened was God's Spirit was teaching me and leading me through conversations with others from hearing uh, and reading the Bible uh, I learned to be skeptical of my skepticism. Uh, really, I came to this point where I realized, wait a minute, it would take more faith for me to remain a non-Christian and to imagine that you know God's not there or that Jesus was just a myth, a myth. It would take more faith for me to believe that than it would for me to just just become a Christian. I mean, that there, not that there weren't still doubts, not that I don't still have you know places where my faith struggles. I think you do too. But at the end of the day, you're sort of weighing out, well, which one requires more faith? And honestly, Christianity requires less faith than to keep on believing that this is all there is and that there's no eternity and that there's no accountability for our souls and there's no Savior who God has sent uh, to forgive us. So, so that was a big part of, of my um, growth and, and becoming a Christian. And then when I became a Christian, then there was this new question, okay, what about the church? What about baptism? What about baptism? Because, uh, and this is interesting about my family, even though I came from this sort of skeptical family, a non-Christian family, uh, you know the expression, a little religion is good for the soul? Um, my, my family believed that too. And, and I, was, I was actually baptized when I was 10 or 11 or somewhere in their middle school, you know, um, uh, at Good Shepherd Episcopal Church on Hampton Boulevard. And, uh, and I can remember the church 
I don't, I don't remember my baptism, but I do remember uh, that building. And I, and I remember um, the, the inside of another church too, Larchmont Baptist in, in Norfolk, where uh, I attended the, that church for just a brief time, me and my brother, because one of my dad's students, one of his art students, who was a Christian, invited my dad to join him for church, come to church with me. Um, and my dad said, ah, that's really not for me. But I got two boys, and um, you know they would probably benefit from it. So I, I do remember those two churches growing up: Larchmont Baptist and Good Shepherd Episcopal. So the question I had um, as as a, a, a brand new Christian who had been baptized, but I didn't remember it. Now what? Do I need to be baptized uh, as a believer? Um, so if my assumption was that you know, hey, a believer should be baptized. Uh, and yet, I'd already been baptized uh, as a maybe a 10-year-old or so. What should I do? What would you do? How would you have counseled me? Um, I'll get back to that and kind of tell you the rest of the story. Um, and, and, and let's get to Ephesians chapter 6. Really, the question we're dealing with, um, to, 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 to put it this way, does the sign of the new covenant, uh, does the sign of the covenant of grace, baptism, does baptism belong on the babies of believers? put it that way. Does baptism belong on the babies of believers? Let's turn to Ephesians 6. Please stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to just read verses 1 through 4, a brief, brief passage, and then we'll, we'll talk some more about it. This is God's Word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, we thank you for the, the gospel that comes to us through your word, uh, the, uh, the truth of Jesus uh, who satisfies our longings who gives us what our hearts truly were made for. Uh, Lord, would you uh, continue to woo us and compel us and remind us again and again uh, that in Jesus and through Jesus, um, our, our needs, our longings, uh, our, need, our, our, our eternity uh, is satisfied. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Uh, I want to begin just by talking about the children of the covenant, and then we're going to talk about calling them um, into uh, relationship with God through His covenant. And we're here in these four verses of chapter 6 of Ephesians, but I do want to pull back just a little bit. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open, I, I want you to turn to the very first two verses of Ephesians in chapter 1. Um, where Paul is doing his greeting. He's introducing himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's not an uncommon greeting for Paul. He'll address uh, most of his letters to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints at Philippi, Corinth, you know, you name it. And the saints is his way of describing those who are God's people. They're, they've come together to worship God. They're in his covenant, uh, and they're identified as belonging to God. Uh, and that includes, as you get uh, into Paul's letter, uh, he follows his sort of typical pattern. He'll spend the first part of his letter 
telling them what God has done for them. These are some of the indicatives. Here's what's true of you. Here's what's true of the gospel. And then he moves on to his imperatives. And he says, okay, now in light of what's true, here's how you can live consistently with these truths. Here's what God you know, wants you to do. Here's how you live as a disciple. Um, and then we, we get to those, those imperatives, you know, beginning at the end of chapter 5 and, and so on. And Paul starts to identify different categories of people, different categories of saints, holy ones, uh, in the church. And he begins with the wives in chapter 5, verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Um, And there's a contextualization there. He wants their relationship with their husband uh, to be an echo of their relationship, their honor that they give to God, uh, to the Lord. And then to the husbands in verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Again, the context of the gospel, husbands, let your love for your wives remind them of how well Jesus loves his bride, the church. And then you get to chapter 6, we talk about children, obey your parents in the Lord. There's a, a gospel contextualization going on there. Uh, uh, verse 5 of chapter 6, bond servants, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. Uh, Again, the gospel context for their obedience. Verse 9, another category of saints, the church in Ephesus, these are the bosses, you know, the employers, the masters. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So Paul's addressing his letter to all these different categories of saints, to husbands and wives, to children, to blue-collar employees, and to their supervisors. And so when giving practical pastoral guidance to each group, he does it in a, in a gospel context, and he's addressing them in the same way that the families of faith are treated all throughout the history of God's people. These are the saints. And they've been called out of the world, and they belong to God, and uh, they have his attention. They have his affection. Um, so this says, this says that, you know, okay, the children are here. Um, now, do you think that if these children are being addressed, is he only speaking, is he only speaking to those kids who are old enough to have a testimony and a profession of faith that, that would qualify them for a believer's baptism? Or are we talking about kids, you know, who possibly are even younger than that? Uh, this isn't the only place in the Bible where Paul describes the children of believers as, as holy. Um, he does, again, uh, the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, let me briefly cover this passage. It's one that gets a lot of discussion when, when a debate about baptism and does it apply to, to, to children, to babies in particular. Uh, And the verse goes like this, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So this is some pastoral advice from Paul. And he's addressing a situation where presumably one spouse becomes a Christian uh, moves from being a skeptic to being skeptical of his or her skepticism, and bows the knee to Jesus, 
And now they're trying to figure out, how do I live faithfully in this covenant of grace with Jesus? Uh, I'm married to my spouse who's not yet a believer, praying for him or her. Uh, and we have kids. What's their status in relationship to God? And here's you know, where Paul's saying, look, by virtue of the believing spouse's relationship with Jesus, that has an effect on the unbelieving spouse, and it, it, and it has an effect, it, it has implications for the status of the children. Um, so in Paul's language, the unbelieving wife is made holy, the unbelieving children are not unclean, they are holy. Um, one of the commentators puts it this way. Paul implies that children are consecrated on the basis of the Christian parent's faith. They are not declared unclean on the basis of a parent's unbelief. In short, faith triumphs over unbelief in the family. Um, you know, there's a number of families that come in and out of Tabernacle, and there's one spouse who believes, the other doesn't. Or maybe it's a single-parent household and, uh, and, and so on. And so it's, it's a struggle that creates hardship um, and difficulty. And this, these are words of life. Uh, for those who are stuck and, and don't have the privilege of having a spouse who loves Jesus uh, or maybe are trying to do uh, single parenting. Uh, and God is saying, look, be encouraged. You are having an incredible effect, not only in your marriage, but on your children. And God's using, using you. Uh, don't give up. Don't bail. Uh, don't walk away uh, from these kinds of marriages uh, because of how God is considering, uh, you know, in particular, your, your kids holy uh, because of this. Now, uh, in the, hopefully and ideally, in the friendly conversations between those who think that baptism should only be applied to believers versus those in our camp who, you know, would say, no, it belongs on our children as well, they'll look at this passage and they go, well, okay, uh, if we're going to be consistent, if, if those in our camp are going to be consistent, why don't we baptize the non-Christian spouse? right, who has been, quote, you know, uh, made holy by the faith of the believing spouse. If we're going to baptize their children, if those children are considered holy, and if that's your rationale for, see, you know, they're set apart by God, they deserve and, and should be entitled to have the sign of the covenant placed on them. If that's our rationale, then wouldn't you place the same sign on the unbelieving spouse? Because we're talking about household baptisms or whatever. And I think that's that's a fair um, thing to bring up, and, and that's something that is, is worth considering and thinking about. And, and I don't think there's any kind of, you know, rock-solid, watertight, drop-the-mic kind of response to this, but I do think if you think about it, there's, you can rest and be reassured in the fact that, okay, in the New Testament, there really is a progress that moves away from God's people being identified nationally as a state uh, and as an ethnicity to something that's de described and defined by the church. And in the New Testament, you do have uh, still this whole notion of headship and household baptisms and so on, but you never do see, and Paul's Paul's specific here, he not only speaks about an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife, but he speaks about an unbelieving husband. And you don't see anywhere in Scripture an example of a believing wife 
uh, of an unbelieving husband taking the sign of her, his belie- believing wife. Uh, there's a struggle there. There's a lack of consistency there. You do see, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, the, because of the emphasis on patriarchy and so on, that the husband or the father, he sets the, the pace for the rest of the family. In the New Testament in the church, there isn't an example of an adult being compelled for reasons of ethnicity or national identity, there's not an example of an adult being compelled to take on the sign of the covenant. But there is a continuity with regard to the kids. This isn't, if, if 1 Corinthians 7 was the only passage that, that dealt with this, then I would say, yeah, we really don't have much to go on. But I don't think it's fair to say uh, for those in the Baptist community, for instance, to push back and say, you know, this is the evidence of inconsistency and in so therefore, you know, that kind of eviscerates the infant baptism argument altogether. I do think there's some, some thought to this that, that makes sense. Over and over and over again, instead, the Bible is uh, affirming that our, our kids are in this special uh, position, a special condition that makes them holy because of God's covenant. God says, these children belong to me. I put them in a family where there are believing parents, even just one believing parent. And therefore, they are special, and it's not an accident that they're there. One more passage to look at um, with regard to covenant children, uh, and it's in uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke. I want to look at Mark's gospel, where Jesus tells the little children, come to him, right? This is in Mark chapter 10, and it goes like this. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. It's one of the sort of rare times when Jesus gets his hackles up against the disciples. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Um, You can hear some indignation in his voice. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Uh, The gospel writers are careful to use a specific word here. It means little children, not just children. These aren't, you know, older kids. These are little kids, babies, specifically. This is the word uh, that's frequently used. There's a uh, an image on the front of your bulletin I want to show you in in color. It's it's beautiful. Um, Lucas Cronach was an artist in Germany. Uh, he and his wife were friends with Mr. and Mrs. Martin Luther, uh, and they, they had suppers together and, and so on. Uh, Lucas Cronick had a studio, very popular artist, uh, very prominent studio, and they did um, this portrayal of Jesus blessing the little children a number of times. This is one of about 20 different uh, images tied to this. And it's, um, it's at a time, it's painted at a time when there wasn't a lot of literacy, and so the uh, visual images uh, were teaching tools. And what you have here is Lucas Cronach giving a little sermon out of Mark chapter 10. And the picture here is obviously Jesus central, and the babies are surrounding him, and the adults are on the, the, the periphery. Uh, and there's some images here that, uh, that are lessons to us, as I said. What's the, what's the first thing you notice? It's a lot of naked babies. Um, almost like uh, they just, what did they just not clothe their children uh, in 16th century Germany or something? You know, you're just scratching your head a little bit, uh, wondering when somebody's going to have an accident. Um, and, and, and yet it's not, 
It's not about naked babies. It's a, it's a message. Uh, it's a metaphor reminding us that, look, we bring nothing into this world. We're going to take nothing with us. We are naked and helpless before God, just like these babies are. Uh, you also see something going on here in the bottom left corner. This, this one particular baby is holding an apple uh, in his or her right hand. We don't know. Um, but what's the apple a symbol of, do you think? We don't know if it's an apple in Genesis 3, but traditionally the image used to represent original sin is an apple. And so the, the, the artist is saying, look, we're affirming some things here. We're helpless. We don't bring anything to Jesus. There's nothing in us that makes us say, all right, here's what I'm going to give you in exchange for your blessing. All I have is my need. All I have is my nakedness. More than that, I have my sin. And I, and I bring to you my, my, my sin, actually, and this is what's you know, depicted through the, uh, the original sin representation. What's the, um, uh, the proximity of the children to Jesus? Almost like they're, they're pressing in on Him. And that's what's beautiful about this text in Mark is that there's this emphasis on touch. Jesus is touching these children, tenderly touching them, drawing near to them. He wants them close. In fact, in Luke's account, He says, bring the children to Me. Not just let the children, bring them uh, to me. And in contrast, you see the adults on the edges, even the naysayers, you know, the disciples uh, who Jesus is rebuking. And they're all sort of giving this poo-poo look like, oh my gosh, what, is, what in the world is going on here? Uh, and instead, Jesus is blessing these children. Um, thank you for this slide. Uh, we're, we're good. Let me just ask a couple of quick questions about blessing. When, I, need a, I need somebody to sneeze on cue right now. Somebody give me a sneeze. Thank you. Bless you. We do it by default. Uh, we just bless you. And we don't think about it. And it's become such a, a throwaway phrase in our culture. But can I just can I ask you what exactly are we believing when we say, God bless you? What's happening in Mark chapter 10 when Jesus takes these children, when he actually insists, bring them to me that I might bless them? When you and I pray, God bless so-and-so, when we're not just doing it by rote or by habit or without thinking about it, when we really mean it, you know what we're doing? We're asking God to come into a favorable relationship with this person, take away the curse, and Endear yourself to this person. Bring blessing to them. And so for, when, when we pray for that, we are the middle, middle man, the mediator um, for that. And we can't guarantee that that's happening. We're not telling God what to do. We're asking Him. We're begging Him. In this passage, um, Mar Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, in this passage, you get a picture of Jesus deliberately and intentionally blessing these kids. Not wishing for God to bless them, but blessing them. Isn't that a picture of what the gospel is all about? Having God's blessing. Having His favor. Being brought into relationship with Him. Having the curse removed. Having His blessing applied. That's why the benediction is the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. And actually, that's exactly what Jesus does for us when we come to Him uh, it's a picture, not, not only uh, is this 
blessing of the children, a picture of the gospel uh, of what happens to us, but it's a picture of what happened to Jesus, who blesses us by virtue of the fact that he took the curse on himself. So he's, on the one hand, the disciples are saying, keep the kids away, uh, turn them away, they can't come near. Jesus says, no, I want them to come near. And ultimately, he himself is going to be turned away And he was going to be uh, exposed to the curse of God in exchange for us to receive his blessing. That's what he did on the cross. He was naked. He absorbed our sin nature into himself. He paid for all of our sins on the cross. He did that in order for us to receive the blessings of the new covenant, the gospel of God's grace. All who believe in Jesus have their sin taken away. All who believe in Jesus are brought near to God. All who believe in Jesus are blessed, not cursed. And this is a picture of Jesus deliberately and intentionally saying, I want to bless these kids. Don't hinder them. Don't keep them away. So, you know, B.B. Warfield, uh, a theologian uh, from a time uh, a little bit ago, So every time we baptize an infant, we bear witness that salvation is from God, that we cannot do any good thing to secure it, and that we receive it from His hands as a sheer gift of His grace, and that we all enter the kingdom of heaven, therefore, as little children who do not do, but are done for. So when we uh, have a baptism, and when we bring uh, the family brings the child up here, and we take water and we pour the water onto the child's head and we are reminded of this sign of our helplessness, of God's blessing and grace on those who come without their diplomas and without their scorecards and without their trophies and instead just simply receive as a gift the blessing of God. Baptism gives us a picture of that, a beautiful picture of that. Um, You know, one, a lot of times what comes up is the question, what about the kids uh, who are baptized, but then they grow up and uh, they walk away? Um, well, that's a really, it's a difficult question, it's a valid question, and it's an important question. Um, the first thing to say in answer to that question is that it's a question we ask too in, in our tradition. Even when we baptize these, these children, we're not assuming We're not presuming that baptism saves them. It's not some magical rite, but it does does give us a picture of God's blessing on these children. And there's a mystery here between God's sovereignty and choosing us and blessing us and putting our children in believing households. There's a mystery between His sovereignty to do that and our responsibility to respond to that covenant invitation, to respond to that promise. And I can't guarantee that every child that's baptized here is going to respond to that promise, nor could Old Testament Israel guarantee that every child that was circumcised was going to respond to the, the, the promises to Abraham and so on. It's the same dynamic here. Um, so even though it doesn't save our kids, you're, trying to, you're, you're kind of left with one position or the other. You have to choose between your, your opinion. Are, are we going to withhold the sign for fear that our own child you know, is going to maybe one day reject the faith? Or should we apply the sign in hopes that God is at work to keep this child close to him? Um, it's, it's not a great example, but I'm going to go for it anyway. 
I want you to think about baptism the way that we think about this dog collar. <laughs> this belongs to Charlie. Charlie's at home right now feeling a little naked, uh, quite furry still, but without his dog collar. Um, what, do you, what do you do if you're a pet owner and you've got a, a dog or a cat? You, you put a collar on them and a dog tag because you're saying, look, I, I'm going to be a good shepherd, right, uh, to this animal. I'm going to take care of this animal. I'm going to feed this animal. I'm going to provide for this animal. This animal is mine. And so when we put this dog collar and the, and the dog tag on Charlie, we're, we're saying, look, we have a relationship with this dog. And furthermore, uh, Charlie... We love our dog, but our dog is not smart. Uh, our dog, if we let him out, he will run. And we have tried for five going on six years to teach him to come when we say come. So, and, and of course, it's not the, the, the dog owner's problem at all. It's the dog uh, um, uh, that, that is just incorrigible and literally will run off, stop, look over his shoulder, laugh at us, and keep on running. Um, and then eventually he comes, he comes back because he wants a treat. When you put the sign of baptism on your children, we're, any parent that loves their child doesn't want to imagine a day when their child is not going to love Jesus. We don't, imagine, and we don't want to imagine a day when our kids are going to reject the faith. But isn't part of what we pray for for them... Um, Aren't we praying that Jesus will be a good shepherd? That if, if our kids do wander, we can pray with confidence, Lord, you have placed your sign on my child. You are a good shepherd. You will leave the 99 to go after the one. And I am claiming your covenant promise for my kid. It doesn't guarantee anything. It's not, a, you're, you're not a, a, a you know, you don't have God in a, in a genie's lamp and you're not rubbing the, the lamp to make him do what you want, but you're praying on the basis of what he has promised. And we have to live in the tension, this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And yeah, our kids have to respond to this covenant. And it's our job as parents to keep calling them to live out the reality of this covenant. Um, and back to, I, I know I've gotten away from Ephesians 6, but let, go look at that again. And where Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. But this is right, and it comes with a promise, the promise of the fifth commandment. So, okay, yeah, like I said, perhaps we should read Ephesians you know, to the saints who are in Ephesus and just imagine that the children there, oh, well, what Paul means really is the kids who are of age, who have made a public profession of faith, maybe they've been baptized as believers, but they're still not considered really adults yet. But I think that's a stretch. I think you're assuming an awful lot there. Instead, what you have are, you know, Probably parents who are just like us, um, things haven't changed much, and they've got two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds who haven't made sense of the gospel yet, you know, they're still connecting the dots, but they know enough that mom and dad want them to obey, and it's going to be good for you if you obey, and there's a promise here, and I want you to lay hold of the promise. This is going to bless you if you listen to mommy and daddy and if you obey mommy and daddy, and isn't that what we're doing when we put the sign of the covenant on our children? There's a promise here. It's God's promise to you. He's going to be your God and you're going to be his people and you have to embrace Jesus and you have to love him. Keep loving Jesus. Uh, we're just going to assume that God's spirit's at work and he's, he's working in the covenant family. So this is what Paul's reminding the kids of and then he also reminds the parents uh, to bring them up in the Lord. Fathers and mothers, we're assuming, 
Uh, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is really important to us, uh, and it's not uncommon for uh, families in our tradition, they'll maybe baptize their children, and then it's just sort of this hands-off approach, a laissez-faire approach to raising their children in the Lord. They think it's the church's job or something to do that. Um, no, we take it on ourselves to really share Jesus with, with our kids, to disciple them and to grow them. Um, so there's something here about uh, this baptism discussion that I want to I bring out uh, where we can learn a lot from our, uh, our brothers and sisters who think that baptism is reserved for a profession of faith. And really what I'm talking about is the value of a testimony. That it's very, very important that when somebody makes a profession of faith, that they do that publicly. And so for the Baptist community in general, and, and others, you know, Bible churches and, and other traditions, Pentecostal, charismatic churches, etc., um, they have long understood that that's really powerful, that there needs to be a line in the sand, that there needs to be a point at which somebody says, look, I'm going to follow Jesus now, and I'm jumping in the deep end. This isn't my parents' faith anymore. I'm not just doing this because it's expected of me, but I have made a decision to follow Jesus. Each one of us in this room should have that point. You know, maybe it's not a light switch in your life. Maybe it's more of a dimmer switch. I'm not sure when that time was in my life, but I do know that this is not me believing just because my parents believed or just because my church believes. This is me believing because I'm convinced that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. So our, our Baptist brothers and sisters, they get that and they understand the value of that. And so they don't understand how anyone would want to forego this experience, much less why any godly parent in his or her right mind, would want to rob their child of the opportunity to make a public profession of faith. And you know what I say to that? I say they're right. It's true. We should not forego the opportunity for our children to make a public profession of faith. But I do believe it's right to baptize infants. Therefore, I just think the Baptist community kind of has the wrong sacrament in mind. That on the one hand, yeah, if, if somebody has never been baptized and they become a Christian, yeah, we're going to baptize them as an adult believer or as a, you know, um, older child believer or something like that. But if they have already been baptized, guess what? The Lord's Supper is the, the line in the sand. The Lord's Supper is your welcome into the communion of the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is where we, uh, we profess the Lord's death until He comes again. It is a public proclamation every time you take the Lord's body and blood. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death publicly until He comes. So, Reformed Christians, you know, we've, we've long understood uh, the value of the Lord's Supper, but we haven't capitalized on it. Instead, we've kind of gotten lazy, more or less, as a, as a tradition. Um, and it goes like this. We sort of assume that once uh, our kids are in middle school age, uh, they've, they, they've achieved this magical time where uh, they should go through a communicants class or something like that. And we, we just assume that they're Christians now and run them through the ropes um, of the communicants course and then they take the Lord's Supper and then, you know, we're, we're done. And, uh, and it's just not, it, it can be lazy uh, and we've been guilty of this. And, and so instead, what we do at Tabernacle 
We don't know that there's any kind of 10 or 12 or 13 years old where somebody magically becomes a Christian. Instead, we are asking parents to train up your children, to be the primary disciplers of your children, and to look for age-appropriate repentance and faith. And when your child is showing, hey, I believe in Jesus, and I'm sorry for my sins, and I want to take the Lord's Supper, then, you know, we give you this workbook to work through with your kids. It's a communicants workbook. And you are the primary disciples, and the church is here to help you and to assist you. And maybe your, maybe your child is eight years old, maybe your kid is 18 years old. I don't know. But when you start seeing age-appropriate repentance and faith, walk them through this workbook, and then we will interview them. A couple of the elders will meet with them, and we'll intimidate them and scare them to death. It's lots of fun for us. No. It's actually a beautiful time where we get to, to spend time with the kids of the church, and we'll approve their testimony, and we'll approve them to come to the Lord's Supper, and we'll say, yes, we see the evidence of the Holy Spirit regenerating this child, and they are welcome at the Lord's table, and they make their profession of faith public. They take vows, and they proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you see how that works? See the beauty of the Lord's Supper? I think sometimes we don't understand baptism because we don't understand the Lord's Supper and vice versa. Uh, another example of this is I remember uh, first year Kathy and I were married, right after graduating from JMU, I just needed a job. I couldn't find a job. I got a job as the assistant manager at Pizza Hut in Stanton, and the truck driver who would bring us the pepperoni and the dough and whatever else, you know, he would unload off his truck. He was a Christian, and we'd have these great talks, and it was great because, you know, I was starved for fellowship. And I, but I swear this guy got baptized every other month. <laughs> it was just like, seriously? You're, you're baptizing? Yeah, it was great. We went down to the river, and, uh, you know, so, so he was looking at baptism as sort of this renewal thing for him, Right? He, he, he just needed some fresh wind in his sails as a disciple. And so, hey, I know, let's go get baptized again. And I know that's an extreme example. Um, but it is an example of how we sometimes get confused. The Lord's Supper is the renewal sacrament. Baptism happens once. There's really no such thing as being rebaptized. Either your baptism when you were a baby was legitimate or it wasn't. Either you were baptized for the first time or not. And, and then, therefore, if you're going to be, quote, baptized a second time, you're, you're, there never really is a second time. You just got wet the first time. Um, so maybe if we had a better understanding of the Lord's Supper, we wouldn't have so many struggles with what baptism is all about. Let me, let me wrap up. So back to my dilemma when I was 18 years old and wondering, do I need to be baptized again? So, you know, sort of looking at the past... Uh, two messages and this morning all together as a unit. Look, if, if you have an assumption if, or if biblically you've come to the conclusion that baptism is you know, primarily a pledge of a new believer's faith in Christ, then of course your advice to me when I was 18 would have been, yeah, you need to get baptized because you're a new believer. On the other hand, if biblically you've come to the conclusion that, wait a minute, there's one big covenant of grace, and God's always been promising to His people, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and He's always put His sign of His covenant on His people. And if you receive that sign as a child, then guess what? He's been faithful to His pledge, His pledge of His covenant, of putting His sign on His people. And praise the Lord, He did it to me. Like It just wasn't... It wasn't hard for me to, to realize and to see, wait a minute, God, God really does choose us. 
He really does pluck us out of uh, an experience that is without hope and without God. It plucks us out of an empty way of life handed down to us from our forefathers. And he rescued me, and he saved me, and he surrounded me with people who were sharing the gospel with me, and he put eternity on my heart, and he called me to himself. And he was faithful. He was faithful. When he put the sign on me, when I didn't have any clue of who he was, he didn't stop pursuing me, and he brought me to himself. And so I give thanks that God was faithful to me, that the sign of baptism isn't so much a sign of my faith as it is God's faithfulness. So um, Ligonier uh, is a theology group out of Florida. Uh, their, their website says, like circumcision, baptism points beyond itself to justification for those who believe. Moreover, like circumcision, the value of baptism isn't tied to the moment when it is administered. The most important thing about baptism is that we possess the reality it signifies, not whether we receive it before or after coming to saving faith. So, you know, as we've said before, baptism is this new covenant sign. It needed an upgrade from circumcision, and it points to the same thing that's always been held out before God's people. If you believe, you can have a righteousness that is by faith, a gift to you, this right standing with God. So as we wrap up, let me, this, this whole series on, on baptism, um, let me just let you know, as you pray for your kids, here's what, here's what infant baptism allows you to, here's how it allows you to pray. Father, Thank you that my kids are your kids first. And you say my child is holy and you've put the sign of your uh, ownership on them. Lord, thank you. And Jesus, you are the good shepherd and I am praying that you will not let any of your sheep be lost. Please continue to be at work in my children. And Holy Spirit, give my child the faith that their baptism points them to and grow their faith and help them to improve in their baptism. So um, for the rest of us, look, don't have uh, a conversation about baptism without believing the gospel. You know, don't have a conversation about baptism without embracing what baptism is pointing to, whether you're coming from an infant baptism perspective or a believer's baptism perspective, because here's how it can go otherwise. You can get stuck. This, the horns of this dilemma, like, oh no, God's going to be angry with me. Jesus will be indignant with me if I don't let my little children come and be baptized. So that's the one horn. The other horn is this. Oh no, God's going to be angry with me if I baptize my little children and then deprive them of a believer's baptism in that profession of faith when they're older. What do I do? You know, and there's this anxiety about being right, getting this right. Look, your rightness, your righteousness is in Jesus. You're called to walk by faith. And this probably isn't going to be watertight for any of us. There's validity on both sides of this. I do think there's more validity, biblically, when it comes to you know, putting the sign on our babies and our children because they're holy. Jesus loves them. But look, if you are coming down on the other side of this, that's okay. Uh, but don't get wrapped around the axle of, like, I've got to be right, and I've got to have you know, this rightness that comes from my position on baptism. So at the end of the day, you've got to make a choice. Um, and I do think, you know, as I'm coming at this and as our tradition comes at this, you know, we think, which one is the clear, most clear picture of God's sovereign grace? Putting a sign on those who are helpless. Which, which um, you know, recipient shows us a, a better picture of how, how needy we are? Well, you know, the children and so on. So... This is some of why we're coming to it. If you still have questions, it's okay. If you're not persuaded, uh, I mean, it just means that I've failed. 
that's okay, and I'll be fired, and my kids are going to go hungry, but it's okay because they've been baptized. So anyway, um, no, you don't have to believe in infant baptism to be a part of Tabernacle or to keep being a part of our Tabernacle family, uh, but we, we do want to encourage you, know what you believe, right? Know what you believe and know why you believe it. And if you still aren't sure what you believe, keep studying, keep praying, talk to me. And guess what? If you're in a household where you're kind of the house divided, you know, one spouse is saying, yeah, let's baptize our children. And the other spouse is like, uh-uh, that's not happening on my watch. Uh, keep the conversation friendly. Your kids will not be blessed to watch mom and dad go to war with each other over this topic or any other topic. They're not going to be blessed to watch one parent dominate the other parent. Your kids will be blessed when they see you walking out the gospel of God's grace, trusting that your righteousness is not in your position on any theological you know, treatise here, but is in Jesus, and that you're loving him and loving one another and seeking to serve one another. Can we do that in our families and in our church family? Let's pray. All right, Father, thank you for giving us uh, the gospel, uh, teaching us how to love one another, even teaching us how to disagree with one another. Uh, but more than that, uh, just teaching us what it means that you love us and that you are our God and that we are your people. Uh, we thank you for Jesus who calls us close and who touches us, and who, who embraces us and blesses us. Thank you for seeing beyond our sin, uh, for covering it and taking it away and uh, removing it as far as the east is from the west, and instead calling us your own and blessing us as your children. Lord, would you help us to be uh, faithful parents uh, to our own children, to the church's children, whether we are actively parenting or grandparenting or single parenting or or, or can't even have kids of our own, but Lord, you've placed us in a church family uh, where we are brothers and sisters to one another and we can bless each other. Lord, please help us to glory in the covenant and in your love for your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.